Our passage for this morning is Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 17. I would ask if you could please stand with me, if you're able, in reverence for the word of our God. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 17. And um, last week we focused on verses 1 to 7, and this, this morning we're going to be focusing on verses 8 to 17. Genesis 9, 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. To your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, and teem on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. You may be seated. And let's pray again together. Faithful God, we marvel when we think of your riches of grace that you have showered upon us. Lord, we thank you for the fact that, that you have, been, have always been faithful and you will always be faithful because you are the unchanging, faithful God. Lord, we thank you that in this covenant that you made with Noah, we see so much of your grace, yet it is still only a shadow of the grace that we find in Jesus Christ. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to see Christ in these covenant promises. Help us to see Christ and to see the the character, the nature of Almighty God that we might bow in worship. And Lord, that we might walk by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit in faithfulness and obedience, trusting, Lord, that you will never forget your covenant. We pray this in the everlasting name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Every word of the Bible is inspired. Every word of the Bible is inerrant. Every word of the Bible is authoritative. And because every word of the Bible is inspired, inerrant, and authoritative, every word of the Bible is vitally important. 
Yet there are some words in the Bible that are even more vitally important. And this morning we are dealing with one of those words, and that word is covenant. Covenant. The first time the word covenant is used in the Bible is in Genesis 6, after telling Noah that he's going to bring a flood on the earth to destroy everything. In verse 17, God says to Noah, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. God is going to cull the seed of the serpent, but he is going to protect the seed of the woman. We're still continuing to see the way that God deals with these two lines of people. The the, the people of the rejection of promise, the people who ultimately belong to the enemy, and the people of promise, the people who belong to God. God is going to destroy everything on the planet, but he says, I am going to make a covenant with you. He's going to save Noah and Noah's family and representatives of every kind of land animal. Then after the flood has abated, after Noah and his family and the animals come off of the ark, after Noah has made a burnt offering, God then says that he will never again flood the entire planet. So Genesis 6.18 is the first time that the word covenant is used in the scriptures, but it is not the first covenant that we see God making with man in the scriptures. The first covenant that we see is the one that God made with Adam, the, the covenant of works. Remember Ligon Duncan's simple definition of the word covenant, a binding relationship with blessing and obligation. Gordon Hugenberger adds to that, a covenant is an elective relationship of of obligation under divine sanction. So that first covenant, the covenant that, that God made with man, this covenant of works was grounded on the promise, obey and live, disobey and die. It's the covenant that that God made when he said, you may eat of of the trees, all the trees of the garden, but you must not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Augustine, in the city of God, wrote, for this first covenant, which was made with the first man, is just this, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Adam sinned and received the sentence of death. Adam, as our federal head, represented all of us. We were all in Adam. In the day that Adam sinned, we all received the sentence of death. So man fell, but God is ever gracious. God is ever gracious, for on the heels of the broken covenant of works, God established the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15. This is the first sign of the good news of the gospel. This is the initiation of the covenant of grace. And it points to Jesus Christ, whose heel is bruised by the serpent in the process of crushing the serpent's head. Heinrich Bullinger, Zwingli's successor in Geneva and widely considered to be the greatest of the second generation of reformers, describes this well. 
says, now first, he first did make the covenant with Adam, the first father of us all, immediately upon his transgression, we with him, silly wretch, into his favor again, and promised his only begotten son in whom he would be reconciled to the world and through whom he would wholly bestow himself upon us, making us partakers of all his good and heavenly blessings by binding himself in faith and due, due obedience. This is the covenant of grace. And so while the covenant of works was grounded on the premise, obey and live and disobey and die, this covenant of grace is grounded on the promise, I will obey for you. I will receive the punishment of your disobedience. And this gracious covenant was then renewed with Noah in our passage here this morning and, and will be again with Abraham and again with, with Moses where the obligations are laid out in the Ten Commandments but also with the addition of, of many religious ceremonies. The covenant was renewed yet again with King David. But all of these covenants in the Old Testament are, are, are merely shadows and types. The, the ceremonies of the covenant and all of the shadows and types are fulfilled in the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. This covenant is the, the archetypical, glorious, and final covenant of grace because Jesus Christ is the one who obeyed for us. Jesus Christ is the one who received the punishment of our disobedience. So this covenant that we're going to be looking at this morning, this covenant that God makes with, with Noah and, and really in, in part also with, with, all of, of, with every living thing, points to the covenant in Christ, the new covenant in Christ. Last week we focused from verses uh, one to seven on how the covenant looked back prior to the fall, to the blessings given to man in creation. Those that are, are laid out in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 29. The, the mandate to multiply and to have dominion and to be image bearers of God as, as well as the provision of food. But now that sin has corrupted the heart of man, these blessings are, are recast. They're, they're adapted to the post-fall, post-flood world. Man still retains the image of God, but that image is now damaged and, and deformed. and now requires the, the death penalty for murder. Man is, is still given the, the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, but now man's life needs protection from other men. Animal life also needs protection as the dominion of men over the earth is now distorted so that animals live in the fear and dread of man. Yet this is also a protection for man against the animals because, because many of these animals now pose a threat to man. Yet, as we see, it's the animals who are in far greater danger from, from the humans because, because now we have been given, it's been given to man to be able to consume their flesh. So yet again, we see this, this regulated with the injunction against the consumption of an animal's life blood. So, so this, this idea of dominion is regulated so that, that man, will, is, when, he devour, when he eats an animal, is not to devour it alive, but to drain out its blood. So then the provisions of the covenant of grace in, in Genesis 9, 1-7 are, are a repetition of the blessings of creation adapted to the situation after the fall. But now in Genesis 9, verses 8 to 17, here we see a repetition of the promises of the covenant of grace. 
Again, adapting them to life after the fall and here after the flood. So this morning we're going to see in verses 8 to 11 the confirmation of the covenant. And then verses 12 to 17, we're going to see the sign of the covenant. So first of all, the confirmation of the covenant in verses 8 to 11. In the previous section, in verses 1 to 7, God spoke to Noah and his sons about the rights and responsibilities under the covenant, what man can and cannot do under that covenant. And now in this section, verses 8 to 17, God talks about what he will and will not do. God says, I will never send a global flood again. In his book entitled The Christ of the Covenants, O. Palmer Robertson refers to this covenant as the covenant of preservation, that God will preserve the earth until the final judgment. Now we've already seen the preservation in verses 1 to 7, haven't we, with the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, as, as well as the stipulations for the protection of human and animal life that reflects God's dealings with man in creation. So in that sense, there, there's a, a universal element to the covenant. This is a covenant that God makes with, with all of life. Yet, this covenant is also centered on Noah and his sons. And so in this, is a, it's a continuation of God's promise to preserve the seed of the woman over and against the seed of the serpent. So again, broadly, this is a covenant to preserve life on earth, Yet it is specifically a covenant to preserve God's chosen people. Therefore, again, from O. Palmer Robertson, this, this covenant binds together God's purposes in creation and God's purposes in redemption. And so in this, you can see God's unfolding plan of redemption moving forwards towards the new covenant in Christ. So we see, first of all, God speaking to Noah and his sons in in verse 1, and that represents a a new development in the unfolding narrative of Noah. Remember that prior to that, God had only spoken to Noah. Now he's also speaking to his sons. And all of the the communication, all the promises, all of the blessings that came to Noah's family prior to verse 1 of chapter 9 came vicariously through Noah. And now God is dealing directly with Noah as well as his sons. We saw that in verse 1, and we see this again in verse 8. Notice that God is speaking to Noah and his sons. All of the, the yous in 9, 1 to 17 are plural, whereas prior they were all singular. What we're seeing here is the, is the transition to the, the next Toledote, the, the generations of the sons of Noah that we're going to see from Genesis 10, 1 to halfway through Genesis 11. So what does God say to Noah and his sons here in verse 8? He says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Now the word that is translated establish here mean, means to make stand or to come to fruition, or to endure. It often refers not to a new situation, but to the realization of a previous promise. That's certainly the case here, because remember back in 6.18, where God had made a promise to Noah, saying, I will establish my covenant with you. 
But even there, the, the word establish, it, the word is established, so it points back further still. It points back prior to that promise of the covenant in Genesis 6, 18. So this is the first, word, the, the first use of the word covenant is in Genesis 6, 18, but it points back, it points back to the covenant that God made with Adam. So this then is covenant renewal. It's covenant renewal. Again from Heinrich Bullinger. Noah also was he with whom God first renewed the covenant made with Adam. But it is, but it is but one covenant, only even the foresaid promise and end made by God unto Adam. So this covenant with Noah has already been made to Adam and it will be made again and, and amplified until it comes to the new covenant in Christ's blood. So again, this word covenant was first used in Genesis 6, 18, but now it's used eight times in just these 10 verses. God is the one who establishes this covenant. Here, John Murray. It is God's covenant in that it is conceived, devised, determined, established, confirmed, and dispensed by God himself. The fact that, that God is doing it is repeated five times in this section, in verse 9, verse 11, verse verse. 12, verse 13, and verse 17. When something in Scripture is repeated like that, it's like putting several exclamation marks at, at the end of the statement to, to, to show you just how important this is. God is establishing his covenant with Noah, his sons, and their offspring. And so here again, we see the continuation of the promises to the seed of the woman from back in Genesis 3.15 who's at war with the seed of the serpent. But as, as we saw again and again, not all of the seed of the, of the woman, of the woman were this, really the seed of promise. They might have looked like they were the seed of the woman, but we think we, it doesn't take very long after the fall for the first murder to take place. So there's a sense in which, in which Cain was of the seed of the woman, but really she was of the seed of the serpent. I'm going to see the same thing again with, with Noah. As God here speaks to Noah and his sons, but, but by the time we get to the, the second half of chapter 9, we're going to see that, that not all of Noah's sons are of the seed of the woman. Some of, them, some of them belong to the seed of the serpent. So it's, 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 when we look at this covenant broadly, so narrowly it's, it's looking at this, the seed of the woman and God's promise to preserve a line to to the point of, of Christ. But when we think about it broadly, it's not only human beings who are recipients of, this, of the blessings of this covenant. Look at verse 10. The Lord also makes his covenant with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark for every beast of the earth. So what then is the nature of of this covenant. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that there shall never again, sh that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is an amplification of the promise that God had made to Noah in Genesis 8 verses 21 and 22 where the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intentions of man's heart is the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth neither will i ever again strike down every living creature as i have done 
while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. That, that promise is, is part of the, what's called the divine deliberation. We're, we're giving insight into uh, an intra-Trinitarian discussion of, of what God is saying he's going to do between the members of the Godhead. But here in chapter 9, in the second half, we see the implementation of the covenant. And so this covenant, again, speaking, speaking broadly, is the reason why you don't start building an, an ark every time there's rain in the forecast. It's the reason why you do not need to fear global warming or nuclear winter. Because God has promised that he will not flood the earth again. He will not destroy the earth again until the final judgment, until the time of the end. Yes, there are going to be environmental issues. Yes, there is going to be wars and rumors of war, but there will not be any kind of global catastrophe until the time of the end. So then with respect to the promise to preserve life, this covenant is, is vast in, in its application. It embraces every living thing. This covenant is enduring. It, it continues until the end of time. This covenant is gracious in its generosity, being entirely unconditional and undeserved. And in the redemptive aspects of this covenant, we see the graciousness of the covenant embracing God's chosen elect, chosen not for the good works, but solely by God's grace. Remember from the end of, of Genesis chapter 5, when, sorry, in, in, sorry, in six, 6, 8, where Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is God's grace. God, God made Noah the recipient of his grace. Noah's righteousness was not his own righteousness, just as our righteousness is not our own righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ given to us at the sovereign, under the sovereign election of God. So it is by grace and by grace alone. And so in this covenant, we, we, we see that the nature of God graciously pouring out his precious promises on those who do not deserve anything but wrath. And he is always faithful to keep his promises. Turn in your Bible, if you will, to, to Isaiah chapter 54. It's the passage that Warren read for us earlier. Look at, at verse We'll, we'll focus just for a minute, a few minutes on verses 5 to 10. Isaiah 54, verses 5 to 10. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called, for God has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. But for a brief moment I deserted you, Sorry, for a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And this is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, for I will not rebuke you, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. 
So there, this covenant that God makes with his people is, is, is we see that the marriage is a picture of that. We see that again in the New Testament, don't we? When we talk about, about how marriage is to be a picture of Christ and the church, the faithfulness of, of, of God to die for his bride. Again, this is grace. It's not based on, on any merit, foreseen or otherwise. It's solely on God's grace. When God says, but my, I've, I was angry, but with now with everlasting love, I'll have compassion on you. And he likens it there in verse nine to the days of Noah. So we see here in this covenant that God is making with Noah that, again, there's, there's elements of, of, the, this, of a covenant to preserve, but it's also a covenant of redemption. And in that, it points to the covenant of Christ's blood, the new covenant in Christ. So what can we as, as recipients of, of God's vast, faithful, gracious love, what can we do but, but give thanks and call on the name of the Lord? This is the only right response to this grace of God in his covenant of grace. Well, now in verses 12 to 17, we, we see the sign of the covenant. God said in verses 12 and 13, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud and it should be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So the rainbow is the sign of the covenant. A, a sign is something that points beyond itself and therefore requires interpretation, which is what we find here. The importance of the sign is what it communicates and evokes, not the wonder of the, of the sign itself. Matthews explains that signs are a visible token of God's invisible word of grace. So this sign, this rainbow, then, then emphasizes God's gracious initiative. Not, is the, the, not only is the rainbow up high in the sky uh, beyond your reach, but have you ever tried to approach a rainbow? I remember driving in the car one day. We were going, it was, it was in Australia. We were going um, to, to climb a particular spot and, and there was a rainbow that was, was traveling along with us in the, next to the car. And, and you could, it felt like you could almost reach out your hand and, and touch it, but, but this, this rainbow was always out of reach. Think of the way that the treasure that this rainbow represents is far, far greater. It's, it's priceless beyond measure, far more value than any pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. We think of these, of these signs that, that God uses. There's, there's two other times in, in critical moments of human history where we, see, where we see signs given. Circumcision is given as a sign at the birth of the nation of Israel. Genesis 17, 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And the other place that a sign is given is, is the Sabbath, which is given as a sign for creation in verses 16 and 17 of Exodus 31. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath th throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day he rested and refreshed. It was rested and was refreshed. So the rainbow then is, is up there, no pun intended, with, with circumcision and the Sabbath 
as important signs of God's action in human history. Notice again that it is God who's doing it. He says, it is my bow. It's the sign of the covenant that I make, verse 12. I have set my bow, verse 13. We also have God bringing the clouds in which the rainbow forms in verse 14. God does it. Now we can describe the way that the rainbow is formed by, by, by rays of light being refracted through droplets of water into the colors of the spectrum. We can, we can talk about the physics of the rainbow. But no matter what process is involved, we need to remember that this is an act of God. Similarly, although we can describe the way that male and female gametes come together to produce life, the birth of a baby is no less an act of of God. You could describe processes. We need to remember that it is God who does it. God says in verses 14 and 15, when I bring my clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Notice that God says, I will remember my covenant. He says it again in verse 16. Again, this, ref- this, this repetition is for emphasis. God is putting an exclamation mark on his promise. He's saying, I will never forget my covenant. Now we know that God is omniscient, that, that God can never forget anything. But this word that's used here, remember, is again, it's covenant terminology. It, it's used repeatedly to speak of God's faithfulness. Friends, the rainbow is not there ultimately as a reminder for God. God does not need to be reminded. It's there as a reminder for you. You need to be reminded. I said this when we're dealing with God's remembrance of Noah in Genesis 8.1. Don't forget that God remembers you. Never forget that God remembers you personally. John Murray says it well. The revelatory purpose of the rainbow is to bear witness to the divine faithfulness. So the rainbow is a sign that God will never forget you. The next time it rains, look for the rainbow in the sky. Yes, notice that it's beautiful. The colors of the spectrum there are beautiful, but remember what it means. It also provides a teaching opportunity for your children. Ask them who made the rainbow and then tell them what it means. It's a bitter irony that wicked men would co-opt or corrupt the image of the rainbow as a sign of their movement. The Lord has given them over to this debauchery. Turn with me if, with me, if you will to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Verses 24 to 27. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and likewise men gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. So in their pride, they fly the rainbow flag. And tragically for them, the sign will testify against them on the last day. We need to not stop there with that particular sin. If it, Paul continues in, in Romans 1, verses, verses 8 to 32, describing all kinds of sins for which the judgment of God is coming. All kinds of sins that, that God gives over, gives people over to who, who are walking in willful rebellion and willful wickedness. The sign will testify against them on the last day. Repeatedly in the scriptures, the Lord is, is described as a warrior fighting against his foes. And the bow is often referred to as one of his chief weapons. Rome, uh, in Psalm 7, verses 12 and 13, if man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. And the rainbow is referred to as the bow in the cloud. It's the same word that is used there in Psalm 7 as is used in Genesis 9 and several other places in the scriptures. The same word for bow here in Genesis 9 is a battle bow, a weapon of war. Von Rad said that God hung up his battle bow to be a sign of peace. But the bow is not hung up, is it? The bow is pointed up. Think about the direction that the bow is aimed. Nicholas Batzig of, of Ligonier Ministries describes this image. He says, so we see that God, by placing the rainbow in the sky, was in a sense aiming his weapon of war and judgment at himself. And as it, as it was the cutting of the covenant with Abraham in which God passed through the animals that had been cut apart in judgment, God is saying in the Noahic covenant that there will be judgment. But for those whom the Father has sent the Son into the world to redeem, that judgment will fall on himself, on the cross. We need the comfort of the rainbow and all that it represents. Martin Luther wrote, we too need this comfort today in order that the, despite a great variety of stormy weather, we may have no doubt that the sluice gates of the heavens and the fountains of the deep have been closed by the word of God. But more than that, more than that, we need to remember that this, this reminder that the fountain of God's wrath has been poured out on his son as his life's blood was poured out for you. Last Friday, after the big thunderstorm, I kept looking out the living room window for, for where I often see a rainbow after a storm, and, and there it was, a sign of God's faithfulness to his covenant. It's a sign of God's faithfulness to me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God is faithful to you. 
he will uphold his covenant by his grace. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we marvel at your great grace to us in Christ. Lord, we thank you that in the unfolding redemption of Scripture, we we see your plan of redemption. We see the way that your plan of redemption points to Christ, points to the new covenant in his blood. And I pray, Lord, that in the power of your Holy Spirit, that, that, that all who are, are under the sound of my voice will repent through the work of your Holy Spirit and come to new life in Christ, adopting and embracing for themselves this new covenant in Christ's blood. We ask it in the strong and beautiful name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen.